I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Thanks for joining us for another episode of What's Next. I'm Angelie Preston, and on today's show, we welcome artist Valentino Dixon. Dixon, a Buffalo native, spent 27 years at the notorious Attica Prison in Wyoming County for a crime he did not commit. Dixon maintained his innocence and was exonerated in 2018. While in prison, Dixon began honing in on a talent he had since he was a kid, drawing. One of those drawings would bring national attention to his artwork and his wrongful conviction. Valentino, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing better. You're doing better. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot to get into. We should start off first by your background. You are a Buffalo native. Where did you grow up? Tell Tell us about where you grew up at. I grew up on the east side of Buffalo, um, of course, uh, economic disaster, uh, drug addiction, you know, uh, a lot of gang violence and stuff like that. So was this, when you grew up, was this in the the 70s, 80s? 80s? Yes, well, 70s and 80s, and uh, I was arrested in 1991. I was 21 years old. Okay, so let's let's talk about your home life. How was your home life? Well, times wasn't that bad the way it is now, okay? Because, you know, when I left here, people still had a certain amount of love and respect for each other, okay? Even though we were all poor and lived in an impoverished, you know, environment, it still was a lot of love. You know, the reason I say that, because when I went away and came back 27 years later, it was like night and day. So when you grew so you're from the east side. Mm-hmm. Um, one of your drawings that I saw from uh, one of the cards that you have from your card company, Justice mm-hmm. Greetings, which we'll right. get into your businesses mm-hmm. a little later on in the right. show. Um, it shows a little black boy on the corner of Goodyear <laughs> in Genesee. Yeah. <laughs> Is that where you're from? Well, I'm from that area. Mm-hmm. And we kind of hopped around on like four or five different streets. You know, at the yeah. time, you know, so I lived on Bissell, I lived on Goodyear, I lived on Moselle, I lived on Coons, you know, but I, I actually grew up in the Cold Spring area on Waller Street. Okay. You know, my grandmom had this big house and I have six aunts and we all lived there, all my cousins. And then that, and when I got about nine years old, my mom went out on her own. So you mentioned the, the gangs. Was that a big thing in the area coming up for you? Oh, yeah. But it wasn't so much gun violence at the time. Just a lot of fighting, you know, street fights and stuff like that. And if you thought it was bad, then it wasn't because I learned how to appreciate that time opposed to when 1989, 1990 came around, then you had outsiders from uh, other cities that were shooting and robbing people. And, you know, and a lot of my friends started selling drugs. You know, I even dibble and dabbed a little bit 
you know, at 18 years old. It was just normal for us. It was no big deal to sell some weed or a little bit of cocaine. Crack hadn't hit the streets yet. Take our listeners mm-hmm. through growing up in the late 80s, yes. um, early 90s. Right. Paint, the, paint the scene for us about how life was like in Buffalo at that time. And Well, I was actually a good kid. I went to performing arts from the 8th grade all the way to the 12th grade when I graduated. And so I was an art student, and I also painted signs around the city. So I was a little different than all my friends around me. Okay, and so my father had always gave me a certain discipline and instilled that in me because he had a like a candy store in our neighborhood. Even though we struggled, my father's an entrepreneur. He was still always trying to make things happen for us, you know. And so I had that value system through my fa- my father, my mom, you know. And um, but a lot of my childhood friends didn't have that. They didn't have their father around. You know, my dad used to take us to the park a bunch of us in the neighborhood and play baseball and basketball and stuff like that, you know. And so, you know, I think I had a little advantage over other people, you know, in that sense, even though, like I said, around me was just economic devastation and hopelessness. And, you know, people were just trying to make ends meet, you know. And this is where the drug dealing came in, you know. People were trying to survive. And so you, you see people growing stages, you know, trying to survive to driving a Mercedes-Benz or BMW. Now, these are people that you start to look up to, and they become your heroes in the neighborhood, you know. And most people that hear this are like, oh, these guys are violent, they are bad people, and that just was not the case. These guys were just trying to survive, and they looked out for us, you know. And so when I tried to dibble and dab and sell drugs, I knew it was wrong. It's like, what the hell are you doing? You know, but I'm going to make some quick money myself. Do you think when you were exonerated in 2018, mm-hmm. did you get a chance to go back to Goodyear and Bissell? Does it look the same <clears throat> to you? Does it look better off? Does it look worse? Like, what? Are- <laughs> <laughs> reason I'm laughing, right. I'm laughing, but I want to cry. You know, the reason I want to cry is because the very next day, I told my buddy, I says, take me back to the neighborhood. I need to see the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, and while I was in, there were so many people that were telling me how the conditions changed, how most of the houses were gone, you know. And I was like, I got to see this for myself. In a neighborhood that I grew up in my whole life, basically, I didn't recognize. I was like, what street is this? This is Coons. Hell no. It's impossible. You know, 70% 70% of the houses is gone. You know, it looked almost like a forest, okay? And it was very sad. And all I said to myself is I got to do something about this. One day I'm going to come back and I'm going to build new homes throughout that whole area, okay? Because somebody got to do it. And that's still a goal of mine right now. Let's talk about schooling because you mentioned that you were a student at the Buffalo Academy mm-hmm. for Visual and Performing Arts. Yes, how was that? Well, I love performing arts, you know, and at one point I was an honor roll student, but I kind of lost my way and school became unimportant when I believe I reached my junior year. Okay, so I was goofing around. I had kind of lost interest and um, so I didn't utilize my last two years and actually my art teacher were upset with me. I had four art teachers. They were extremely upset with me because I was wasting my talent. Let's talk about the events that led to your arrest. Mm -hmm. 
you were 21 years old? Yes. What happened that day? So I have a younger brother who was home uh, from college from Kentucky. He had actually a football scholarship. He's a good kid, never dibble and dabbed or anything like that. And he was coming home from a nightclub with a friend of his. And some guys pulled up and his friend took off. You know, he didn't know what was going on. And these guys pulled out a gun on him and they told him to get on his knees. And my brother's like, what's this for? Well, he would later find out that his friend that ran off was dating this guy's girlfriend. Yeah, so and my brother got caught in the middle of it. Yeah, he got caught right up in the middle of it. So at the time, I was kind of in the streets and carrying a gun and stuff like that. And so when my brother told me, I was like, no, I really don't want to get involved with this because I've never been a troublemaker or nothing like that. I've never been the type of guy that's going to bother anybody. I'm just not going to let you bother me. You know what I'm saying? And uh, But I'm all about the peace. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, do I know these guys? Where are they at? I don't want to go to them. you know. So I left it alone. All right. So four days later, my brother called me and he says, hey, me and my friend, we're sitting on this porch over here by Louis' restaurant. And these guys, the same guy that put the gun in my head to my back and he ran off, he said they keep riding around. Louis on Bailey? Yeah, Louis restaurant, yeah. Mm -hmm. He said they're riding around. And, like, they pointed the gun out of the car, you know. And I'm like, wow, okay. So I said, I'll be over there. I'll come over there. So when I came over there, I came with a friend of mine's. And I had a weapon, and I put my weapon up. You know, I said, all right, let me put this up. I know it's there for safekeeping, okay. And so we all walked down towards Louis because where they were sitting was, like, maybe three doors from Louis. And we walked down towards Louis because of the crowd down there. It's like 60 or 70 people. It was a hot summer day, August 10th, and it happened to be my mother's birthday. You know, i never forget it because she went to a Pally the Bell concert later on that day. So we walked down, and I said, let me go in the store and get a 40-ounce. Back then, I don't even know if they sell 40 ounces now, right? I, I, think, they, I think they still do. <laughs> so I said, yo, I'm going here to get a beer. Y'all want a beer? And he's like, no, we don't want nothing. So I go in the store. And I'm in there for maybe two minutes, and I hear shots fired. So the first thing I'm thinking is, like, where's my little brother? So when I ran out the door, he was kind of, like, right in front of the store. But anyway, these two guys had pulled out a gun and shot my brother's friend twice in the midsection. And the guy that was with me, a friend of mine, ran down the street and grabbed my gun and came back to help my brother's friend. He ended up shooting and killing one of the guys. Mm. I ran to my car and pulled off. Like, I just left everybody. I was just gone. And long story short, I was pulled over and taken into custody. And I was asked, was I there? Of course, I'm living by the street code. I don't know nothing. Like, I was there. Shots was fired. I jumped in my car and I left. You know, I'm not going to say that my friend was shooting. I'm not going to say that these guys jumped out of the car and they shot this guy in the midsection. You know, that's just like, you just keep your mouth shut. So anyway... The detectives told me if I'm not going to explain to them what happened, then they were going to charge me with this. And they, an hour later, they charged me with murder and two attempted murders. So you were you were driving away from the scene and you were speeding, right? I was pulled over. Uh, so yeah. when were like the cops just like doing their beat? Like the apparently somebody called it in or whatever, and they have a description of everything and everybody. And I had a flashy car at the time, so I was known to the police because of this flashy car. And that made me a target. So 
when they charged me with the murder, the first thing, and they charged me with attempted murder, they even charged me with shooting my brother's friend. Wow. <laughs> they were out of control with this thing. And so I'm like, you know, I'm going to be all right. It's, it's over 60 people out there. A lot of people out there knew me. You know, they knew who I am. They knew what I look like. So there's no way that they're going to get this wrong, you know. And it, this thing will get cleared up. And the next day they paraded me on the news. You know, they had took my clothes and they took my car to see if I fired a weapon. Okay. And they said, yeah, we're going to know if you fired a weapon through this forensics and testing of the gunpowder residue. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's going to clear me. So the next day when I'm on the news and I go to court, nothing is getting cleared up. And so witnesses start coming forward. Like six or seven witnesses came forward and told the detectives that I didn't do the crime. I didn't, he didn't do this. And they told all of them to get out of the police station. They didn't want to listen to They it. didn't want to hear them. You know, the good thing is they took their statements, but then they just let them go and they kept me in prison. What do you think the reason for that was? It was public embarrassment. It was, we arrested this young black man and we're not about to tell the public that we screwed up here and that we made a mistake and arrested the wrong person. They could have fixed it right away. The guy that committed the crime that I knew, he turned himself in and he told them what happened. They took his confession and released him and told him to go on about his business. And I found myself going to trial 10 months later and I had a public defender. Well, okay, I'm still gonna be cleared because I have seven witnesses and I have a confession. There's no way on God's earth that a jury is gonna find me guilty. What I didn't know was that the prosecutor had coerced two people into falsely testifying against me. You know, and they came in the court and said I did the shooting. Did you know these people? I didn't even know them. No, I didn't know them. Never seen them before in my life. And I'm like, who the hell is going to come in here and lie about a murder charge? Like, I don't even know nobody like that existed. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I've been around some bad people in my life, but not to this extent. Like, who the hell is going to do this? But it's the people out there that do it. And long story short, I was found guilty and they gave me 40 years of life and shipped me off to Attica. And that was supposed to be the end of me. So I did my direct appeal. It was denied. Seven years go by. I had no artwork, no nothing, okay? And my uncle Ronnie, he's like, I'm going to send you some art supplies. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Why? Because whatever. He says, you may have to draw yourself till your freedom. You know, he said, if you could reclaim your talent, you could claim your life. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, and oh, he sent me these art supplies, and I procrastinated for a little while, and I started thinking. And I'm, I'm in this cell, the six-body prison cell, and I'm thinking about my teachers. I'm thinking about all the people that I let down. And I'm saying, like, they think I'm a murderer. Like, this is the worst effing crime on the planet. And I'm like, my uncle might be right. I might have to draw myself out of jail. Let me see. Let me see if I can still draw or paint. I, just, I haven't done anything in nearly 10 years. I tested the waters, and I drew a rose. And the other inmates were coming by my cell, and they were looking like, you drew that? Like, whoa, you know how to draw? It was embarrassing. Why? I never told nobody I knew how to draw nothing. It's like, Why was it embarrassing? It was embarrassing because I had this talent, and I had been in there eight years, seven, eight years, and I seen other guys drawing around me because they were drawing flowers and stuff and sending it <laughs> on home. On the envelopes? Yeah, you mm -hmm. already know. On uh -huh. the envelopes, drawing all different types of stuff on the envelopes. 
I even bought a couple, like sent them home. Like, here, let me get this for my mom. Let me get, you know what I'm saying? Because you could have been, do- you could have been doing it yourself. Yeah, I'm, I got the talent, and I'm like <laughs> buying somebody else's artwork, yeah. you know. So when I drew the rose, these guys are coming by, like, wow, like, can you, can I, you know, get you to make something for me or whatever? And I'm like, no, it's not gonna happen. So at the time, my uncle was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Okay, he had lived there for like maybe ten years, and the Indian culture was big over there. Okay. And so he started sending me these images of these Indians and stuff like that. So then I started doing the Indian faces and horses and all kind of stuff, you know. I'm a black artist, but I've always, I never wanted to keep myself in one space. It was always about I can go anywhere I want to, whether it's a, drawing a black face to drawing a sailboat to drawing a koala bear, whatever. So the guys in there gave me the inspiration, like, you know how to draw, and I'm like, I'm, I didn't think it was that great. I'm like, whatever. You know what I'm saying? But it gave me the inspiration and the motivation to continue to draw every day. So I started drawing every day. And I'm kind of like the type of person when I go and dive into something, there's no stopping me. I mean, I'll put 12 hours into it. I'll, I, it's, there's no taking breaks. And that's exactly what I did. I ended up drawing for the next 20 years. You know, and my skill set got better and better and better, and I'm self-taught. So the drawing started looking like paintings after about 10 years. And by then, I had a, I had started drawing greeting cards. And the reason I started drawing greeting cards is because I seen Hallmark and American Greetings cards, and I was like, these cards are boring looking. And so I'm going to create a line that's exciting, and it has a different flair and a different style to it. Then I started studying, and I went to college, and I started reading a lot of books, self-help books. You went to college while you were in prison? Yeah. Okay, you know what? Let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to get more into Mm -hmm. uh, your time in Attica. Mm -hmm. We'll be back with more of What's Next after this. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. If you're just joining us on What's Next, I'm Angelie Preston, and we're here with Valentino Dixon, a Buffalo native, and he spent 27 years of a 40-year prison sentence in Attica Prison for a crime he did not commit. While in prison, his love of drawing, it was, would you say that it died? Oh, totally. And you mentioned in the earlier uh, segment that it was your Uncle Ronnie who was the kind of the catalyst to kind of bring you the motivator to bring up the motivator Mm -hmm. to bring you back. But I want to, before we get more into your drawings and the drawing that garnered you Mm -hmm. national attention and fame and spotlight, Mm -hmm. can you talk about your mental state? I could only imagine for someone who is wrongfully convicted and you know, you did not commit this crime, Mm -hmm. but other people know you didn't commit Mm -hmm. this crime and you are in, I mean, how how was your mental state? How was it for you? I had friends that committed suicide while I was there. And so I realized that prison is a dark place and it's designed to break your spirit. Okay? And so I had read so many books, hundreds of books. Before I left there, I had read over 600 books. 
And one of the books I read was well, A Man's Search for Meaning by uh, Viktor Frankl. And this guy was in a concentration camp. Okay, he slowly seen friends and family members taken to the gas chamber to never return. He survived the Holocaust, but he said that he had to find meaning in his surviving, in his survival there. He, you know, he, he had to find meaning in it. You know, so through all his pain and suffering, he had to find meaning. And so I correlated that with what I was going through, that I had to find that same type of meaning in the suffering that I was experiencing. And then as my faith got stronger, I began to be grateful and appreciative that I was healthy, that I had our supplies. You know, you never know what you'd be grateful for until you're in a situation, you find yourself in a dungeon or somewhere. It's like, you know, this bologna sandwich tastes like a, a filet mignon or something like that, you know? You count your blessings. I'm paying attention to the world. I'm observing everything around me. You know, I'm looking at a 10-year-old kid that's dying of cancer on TV. Like, this kid is not going to see the 11th birthday, but this kid is smiling. Like, how is this possible? So, yeah, I got to survive this. My legacy is not going to be that, oh, Valentino Dixon went to prison for murder and he died in jail. Hell no. <laughs> okay? So, my one thing I got from my dad is, like, he was always, like, super hard on me. Okay? He made me tough. And to be honest with you, that helped me survive prison. That he made me tough when I was a kid. Somebody huh. chased me down the street. He see, he's like, you better go fight him. Like, you know what I'm saying? That, like, you better stand school, up. Yeah. You better stand up. And so that, and I'm not a big guy. So, you know, but my spirit is big. My heart is big. So I knew I, I it's no way I can give up. You know, I just talked to this guy. 20 minutes later, he goes in the cell and hangs up. Did you ever feel, um, you, you mentioned that uh, some uh, some people that you knew mm-hmm. while you were incarcerated. Tons of them. Did Not no some... one or two people. <laughs> did you ever feel that you were at that point? Well, yes and no. You have the thought that crossed your mind, but you hurry up and push it out. When you get denied by the courts over and over and over, you know, you know you're not going anywhere for a while. Like, I'm going to be here for another three or four years because I have to file this motion, and this is how long it takes for them to even respond to it. You know, you learn these things about the court system. And so imagine just knowing, like, there's nowhere I'm going for the next— when, when you're innocent, you expect to be released the next day. Every year is like, I'll be home next year. I'll be home the year after that. Nothing's going to tell me that I'm not going to be home because I have seven witnesses in the confession that clear me. How is that even possible? Each level of the judicial body, as they call it, whether it's the state, the appellate, the federal, the court of appeals, they what I've learned is they protect one another. You know, these facts, this evidence went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they denied it. How do you justify that? But they did. So when my uncle says, hey, you may have to draw yourself out of prison, I was on a serious mission now, okay? If I can become a famous artist in prison, then that's going to shed some light on what happened to me. That's going to open up some doors. And you know, and that was my mind state. And, of course, most people thought I was nuts. It's like, what do you mean you're going to draw yourself out of jail? How? how what? Who? How? You know, and in my mind, I'm not going to take a day off. I'm going to sit in this cell, and I am going to draw for 10 hours a day, and I am going to put my drawings up. I'm not even going to sell them throughout the prison. And then I'm going to work out, and I'm going to keep my body strong and intact. And then I'm going to keep my mental intact. So I have no time to waste in here. I'm going to read as many books as possible. I went in at 21. I need to teach myself about life. I need to learn all that I can 
so that I don't be a statistic. Like, guys were coming back and forth, back and forth. Like, this guy went home after 10 years. I see him six months later in the same cell block, you know, because they couldn't make it on the outside. They didn't have a plan, all of these things. I just became a student of knowledge. I just want to learn everything that I can possibly learn about life, everything from A to Z. And most people is like, you in jail, you don't really know a whole lot about nothing. You know, this is the perception. You know, and true for reality is you got guys that know way more about society than people that's living in society. And at the same time, I don't want to learn so much where I go crazy. You know, you got people that's smart and they're crazy, you know. And so you have to check your mental all on your own because there's no one that can basically, no one can save you. People can help assist you, but you have to make things happen on your own. You know, and this is why I just drew and drew and drew every day, and I waited for my opportunity to come. I didn't know it was going to come in the form of a golf course. Let's get into that, Mm -hmm. because I read you didn't really have an interest in golf growing up. So (laughs) Wait, wait, slow down. You said really have interest? I had zero interest. It wasn't something that was on your radar growing up, kid from the east side of Buffalo. Not in a million years. (laughs) I played football. So th- football and basketball. So so why golf? What if I mentioned golf in the hood? You know they, how quick they would run me out of the hood. Like who the hell is, who is this dude talking about? And so I had become known as the artist in Attica. And how I got that title is because for the next twenty years I drew every day up to ten hours a day. Staff would walk by, the superintendent, they all came to know me. And then I was fighting my case also in the media and I got the attention of a reporter at the Buffalo News in 2004 2004 I had 13 years in you know and I finally got the attention of this reporter and show you know shared with him the documents that cleared me and at first he was reluctant he didn't want to hear nothing I had to say I kind of forced him to read just read these documents man please I'm innocent just listen to me yeah just read them I'm not waste your time I'm not about to waste your time just take 30 minutes to read these documents. You will see that they knew two days after I was arrested that I was innocent. So the reporter asked to read my trial transcripts. Once he read my trial transcripts and all the police reports, he was fully convinced that I was framed. Okay, He began writing a series of articles in the Buffalo News over the next two years, actually about nine articles. So Anthony Cardinelli started writing a series of articles about my wrongful imprisonment. And I just knew that that would be enough to get me released or get me a new trial. And it didn't happen. Okay, we filed a motion. I had some lawyers at the time to file a motion, and the judge denied the motion without even a hearing. He didn't even want to bring us in to present the evidence. How you many know? times had you been up for a parole? Oh, you don't go up for parole. 40 to life means you do 40 years, and so, then you go to parole. You so go to there parole was, after 40 years. Yes. So you had, so your sentence was you had to serve your 40 years. And then go and to then, parole And board. then maybe yes. they would let you out. Because it was 40 to life. So 40 to life means that after I do 40, I go before the parole board, and they can deny me parole. I have friends that had 20 to life and ended up with 43 years before they released them. Mm. on a 20-to-life sentence. So my chances of getting out was very slim. Like, I was never supposed to get out of prison. I was going to die in a prison cell. And the fact that I was innocent and the evidence proved that I was innocent made it even worse because now the authorities that was responsible, they were all squirming to keep this a secret. We got to bury this under the building somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And this is what happens almost every day. 
I read that the person who did kill mm-hmm. the other person, yes. he confessed and he yes. made it vocal that he was the person, you know, you got the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. What happened with that? Well, what happened was this. Six months later, even though he confessed, and he confessed on TV, six months later, the prosecutor got him to recant his confession. Mm. So now you have a judicial system that's saying, like, we're not even going to try to figure this thing out. First, this guy confessed, and then this guy says that Valentino's responsible for this crime. You know, even though I had seven witnesses that cleared me, it didn't matter. You know, he gave them what they wanted, and that's kind of sealed my fate. I even took a polygraph test and passed. That wasn't enough. You know, I mean, they came into prison, gave me a polygraph test and passed. I passed it. They put that in the newspaper, but it still wasn't enough. And when the warden approached me some years later and asked me to draw his favorite golf hole, I looked at him and I started laughing. I'm like, man, I never golfed before, but give it here. Bring it in. You know, he brought this picture of the 12th hole of Augusta. I never heard of Augusta, 12th hole of Augusta. This is a famous golf hole. I drew it for him. He loved it. To my surprise, the inmates loved the drawing. They were like, wow, that is cool. And I thought they were going to clown me. Like, what the hell is you doing drawing a golf course for the warden, you know? My neighbor, Adam Roberts, at the time, he says, Tino, that's my nickname. He said, you should draw more golf holes. I said, hell no. I'm not drawing no more golf holes. What are you talking about? And he threw some Golf Digest magazines on my bunk about a week later. I started looking through the magazine, and I started pulling out the golf courses I was interested in. And I started drawing golf courses. And I started drawing them every single day, nothing else. For some reason, I felt like the golf courses was giving me a new lease on life. It was weird as, it was weird as hell, right? So I started reading articles in the magazine. So I'm like reading about golf. I'm learning the rules. I'm learning the players. I'm learning this world that I've never had the opportunity to be a part of because of where I come from, okay? And this is a white privilege, you know, sport, you know, for a certain class of people. And I don't belong in that world. So I'm drawing these golf course drawings for about six months straight, and I come across a column called Golf Saved My Life by Max Adler. And every month, Max will write about someone who was going through a trying time in their life, and golf was the only time that they felt alive, you know, that it gave their spirit, you know, a boost. And so I'm sitting in that cell drawing these golf courses, and I have the guards coming through there. Everybody's coming to look at the golf courses. And I, you know what? I'm going to reach out to the Golf Digest because golf is saving my life right now. I had 20 years in. I was on borrowed time as far as I'm concerned because the mind is fragile. And I could have woke up the next day and said, you know what? I'm not going to – I don't want to be here no more either, you know. And so the golf was – giving me that added security for my mental, put it that way. So when I sent one of the drawings in a four-page letter explaining what happened to me, of course the reporter didn't believe me, but what captivated him was the drawing. Like, wow, this guy drew this in a jail cell? And he said he's never drawn, he never golfed before. And he asked to read my trial. If you read my trial, which was a short trial, my trial was only three days because they – you know, the goal was to hurry up and just get this thing done and over with. So I didn't have a long trial at all. My lawyer didn't call one witness on my behalf. And it was a jury trial? It was a jury trial. And how did the how did the jurors look? Were they all white? Were they black? What? All white jury, white judge, white prosecutor, white lawyer. Do I have a chance? Very slim chance. I mean, it could happen, but it's like hitting a lotto, you know, and that's how I felt. And my lawyer didn't even give an opening statement. Can you imagine that? Every lawyer on the planet gives an opening statement. 
He didn't give an opening statement, then called one witness on my behalf. He didn't even tell the jury another man confessed. They didn't even know Lamora Scott confessed. And so I accused my attorney in open court of framing me, conspiring to get a conviction with the prosecutor. You know, of course, I was nuts in everybody's eyes. Like, what the hell is this guy talking about? He's not being framed. How's I'm not being framed that eight people clear me in a confession and then none of them make it to the jury? I, that's not a frame up. Does it ever yeah. make you angry when you when you're when you speak about your experience? No, it motivated me. You know what I'm saying? I have time to be angry and bitter and upset and crawling up in the ball in the corner. I didn't have time for none of that. It's on and popping, as they would say. You know what I'm saying? I was not going to let them win, and I know God wasn't going to let them win, and that that was my mind state. So guess what? I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna keep drawing every single day until I get national attention on my artwork. And everybody was already saying I was the greatest artist they ever seen in period. So my time is gonna come, I just gotta hang in there. And so when the Golf Digest wrote me back and said, well, we wanna read your trial and we wanna see what happened here. A week later, they reached out and said, we're, we're definitely writing about this. This is just not right. And I knew that God had sent them. And when they published their story in 2012, Right away, news outlets all over the country were coming. They were reaching out. NBC, the Golf Channel, you know, uh, Forbes magazine, Apple News, name it, they were reaching out for interviews. And you had, and at this time in 2012, you had been locked up for 21 years. Yeah, I knocked locked up for 21 years, but now there's light at the end of this tunnel. I was given a whole jail inspiration because every time we turned around, it was a news crew coming in and it was you know it was pandemonium inside the prison like how the hell is this dude how is this happening here so that got the attention of Georgetown University and the students reached out the professors and students reached out and they said we want to use your case as a class project at the time I had an attorney and but I didn't have much faith in attorneys because I had seven attorneys in 27 years so what the hell is my attorney going to do these students, I have a good chance with these students because at the time, students had been helping people get exonerated, okay? And the university um, has a lot more clout than a law firm as far as I'm concerned. You know, it brings more status. It brings more um, political backing, as you know, in, in a sense. And so I met the students, three students, three exchange students, okay? One was from Japan, one was from England, and one was from France. Imagine that. So I had become very knowledgeable about the law from my studies, and I knew exactly what we needed to do here, okay? I was no longer a, a little kid that didn't know what was going on as far as my constitutional rights and my civil rights and my human rights being violated, you know? So once the students got the paperwork, I wanted to give them all the documents that I had. I was working with them every day on the phone with them, going throughout the whole case and everything, and I kept telling them, we need to get those documents that they never turned over, which was the testing of my clothing in my hands to see if I fired a weapon, okay? Because that's my strongest piece of evidence. They never turned it over. And my attorney at the time, he didn't think it was a big deal, but I knew it was a big deal, okay? Nobody had ever challenged this. So the students decided they wanted to do a class project. So then I told them, I said, I want you to reach out to the prosecutor's office and ask them what they you know, partake in the, in the, in the documentary because they want to do some filming. I said, reach out to them. 
strategist wise, you know, strategy wise. And my lawyer's like, oh, it's not a good idea. I was like, oh, it's a good idea. All right, 26 years in, what do I have to lose? And so they reached out to the prosecutor's office, and the prosecutor at my trial agreed to an interview, an on-camera interview. Oh, he was nice and cocky and, and thought that he, was, he could do an interview. So I kind of lined up some of the questions with the students, and I said, yeah, I asked them about the clothing and my testing of my car, my clothes, my hands. What happened to this stuff? And during the interview, he's saying, well, I'm only human. I could have made a mistake. Okay, mm, that's a start. What about the testing of my clothes? They asked him about the clothing, and he says, well, we tested everything, and it came back negative. Oh, yeah? Well, where's the results? He didn't think it was a big deal when he admitted it, but I knew it was a Brady violation, according to your CPL. So I told the students and my lawyer, I said, we got them now. And they didn't quite understand what was going on with that issue, but I did. I knew that issue. And so a week later, my lawyer called me and said, you're right, we got him on the Brady violation. I knew we got him right. And I'm glad I knew the law because if I didn't know the law, nobody would have even made pay Can to know. Because I don't know what, what the Brady okay. violation is, and I'm sure some of our listeners okay. don't know. What What is so that? What it means is this. Any evidence during the investigation of this case has to be turned over, whether it's not in your favor or it's in your favor. So the testing of the clothing meant that he had exculpatory evidence. And I'm sure you heard of that word, mm -hmm. exculpatory. That means that's evidence that tends to show that I'm innocent or individual is innocent. And he didn't turn it over. He didn't think it was a big deal. It, it could just be one document. If you don't turn over that document, that's grounds for a new trial. That's grounds for reversal of the conviction. So during my trial, I'm crying out, at my sentencing that they tested my clothes. That was like, judge was like, whatever, sit down, who cares? So I already had that on the record, meaning they couldn't say it didn't exist, okay? It couldn't say it didn't exist, it's on the record. And then they actually, they actually gave me the police report where they confiscated my clothes, my car, but they didn't turn over the results of that confiscation of that evidence. So if that evidence would have showed I fired a weapon, then they would have turned it over, but mm -hmm. because it, it showed that I didn't fire a weapon. They didn't turn it over. And a month later, my lawyer came to visit me, and he says the DA's office is going to drop the murder charge, you know, based on them not turning over this evidence. And what year was that? 2018. So from the time that the Golf Digest article came out in 2012. Yeah. And took six more years. Took six more years mm -hmm. before... Before you justice finally, was rendered, Before yes. justice was served and you were yes. finally free. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about 2018. Mm -hmm. 1991 to 2018, a lot of time went by. Oh, yeah. When you were released, did you ever, or even when you were incarcerated, did you ever think about, like, how the world is, is moving on, with you know, without you because, you know, you're locked up in the things that you're missing. You're young, you're 21, mm -hmm. things that a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 35-year-old would be doing out in the world. Did you ever have, like, those thoughts like, dang, I'm missing, look at all the stuff I missed out on? There's only one thing that bothered me, and I was a really good football player. And I should have went to college, and I didn't. I screwed that up. And so when I got to Attica, we had a football league. All right. Shoulder pads, helmets, locker room, football field. The guards betted on the games. This was serious stuff. 
All right, so I was wide receiver, and I dominated that league for 20 years. I actually retired at 45, and I always thought if I get out by 30, I'm going to go to the NFL. You know, I have a chance here because I was just that talented. It didn't happen. So those those years bothered me because I missed out on that opportunity, you know. And But nothing else really in the sense that I realized after so many years that God had a purpose and a plan for me. And I had to roll with it. You know, in life we get we all get tested, but we don't get to decide the test. And my test was 27 years of false imprisonment. Someone else's test, it could be losing a family member, you know, or a health condition or something like that. I knew that once I was released, I was going to live life to the fullest. It was not going to be no wasting no time, okay? Because, you know, my mind takes in everything. And talking to family and friends on the phone, talking to the guards, talking to guys that just left society, you know, uh, people, most people weren't doing much with their lives anyway, you know. So I looked at it like, okay, what I can do in two years, maybe they couldn't do in 20 years. And so I counted my blessings because there were so many of my friends that were killed and they were no longer around, okay, from the street life. So, and that could have been me. And so I asked myself, what's the next goal what do we what are we what are we trying to do here and it was to help as many people as possible it was to continue to draw share my story start a foundation help make the system more fair just and equal fight against these biased prejudice racist laws that harm minorities okay and to put an end to this mass incarceration which is a big business which is a big money business the way slavery was Okay, and like Martin Luther King said best, he said those slave owners were not necessarily evil people or evil men. He said they were motivated by greed. So what you see here in our current 2023 judicial system is a certain class of people who benefit from the pain and the suffering and inflictions of another class of people. Because who's in prison? Minorities. Who's in prison? Poor people. And but prison reform is not a, a big issue. It's not a, it's not at the top of anybody's agenda. He sure is spoken about, but where's the reform? As far as I'm concerned, it could take another 20 years before our judicial system is fair for everyone. Okay, it's like when during slavery, slavery trying to slaves were trying to get over to Canada because they had already abolished slavery. So we're always behind. That's my point. We're always behind. Seem to be behind when it comes to these human rights issues, you know, and that's largely because we have a country that's built on racism, built on discriminatory practices. I just look and I would like to say these people that can change policies and make a change, like where's your heart, where's your humanity? So you mentioned that you have a foundation, Mm -hmm. and what is your foundation called and what does it do? It's called the Art of Freedom Foundation. And... It focuses on wrongful convictions and sentencing uh, guidelines in America because we have some of the worst sentencing guidelines in the world, which is why we have 2.3 million people incarcerated. And the basic way I can describe the system is not designed or equipped to give the poor person a fair trial. And people are over-sentenced. And it's a big problem because it, it seems to be 
more important to keep the jails filled than give people a second chance. And I'm not saying everybody deserves a second chance. There's too many people in there that do that will never get that opportunity. So when you were arrested in, in 1990, mm -hmm. do you think much has changed for black men in terms of the prison system, interactions between black men and police, law enforcement, mm -hmm. since you were arrested and wrongfully convicted? Or do you think things for people of color have gotten worse? Well, it hasn't gotten worse, but it's like putting a Band-Aid over a wound, and the wound never heals, okay? That's the best way I can describe it. And the reason I say it hasn't gotten worse is because at one point, people were being falsely convicted, and it was not something, it was taboo to even speak about it. Now, you see in the news, every day or someone is being exonerated, okay, whereas at, there, at one time, when I went in 1991, that just not was not the case. You, if you uttered the word innocence, people looked at you like you were crazy. Now, you know, people are, at least will give us some thought like, wow, okay, what makes you innocent? And then there's colleges, organizations out there that will give you a chance at freedom. You know, back in 91, these, these organizations and universities didn't exist. Okay, there was no avenue for you. But... The system is still a racist system. It is still an unjust system. It still violates people's rights every single day. Human rights, constitutional rights, civil rights. Until Congress, legislation, the president, the Senate pass something that's not rhetoric, okay, or that's going to have a serious impact on our current justice system, till then we're still going to have 2.3 million people you know, locked up, okay, when most of those people should have been released 10 years ago. You know, I know a guy that has 45 years on a 20-year sentence, tons of them. How? Because the judge gives you 20 years to life doesn't mean he's got to release you. The justice system is going to release you after 20 years. The parole board can say no to that. Even after you have rehabilitated yourself, even after you have shown time after time that you have changed your life, and you have paid your dues, then they still want to keep you incarcerated. They don't want to release you even then, you know, because it's a numbers game. When you were sent to Attica prison, mm -hmm. it was not too far from the Attica prison riots of the, what, the 70s, I believe, that happened, or maybe the early 80s. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking about that? Did that come to mind when you were? I didn't know anything about the Attica riots. I didn't have no clue. Once they shipped me to Attica, they sent me to the cell block where the, where the riot started. Mm. So now I'm learning the history of this prison, you know, and why the guards are so angry. The guards are still angry there right now. The culture was still the same when I arrived. Guys were being assaulted every single day. Some guys were losing their life to guards, 30 guards beating with sticks. And this was when you were yeah, in prison? Yes, 30 guards beating guys with sticks, putting them on a hot radiator in the wintertime turning off the hot water in your cell and the heat during the winter time, stuff like that, denying people showers. I went through all of that during the 90s. I arrived in Attica in 93. So the culture, the mistreatment, the racism still existed at the time. And the beatings didn't stop until 2016 when they threw a guy down some steps and broke his 
arms and his legs, and the FBI got involved because the nurse wouldn't falsify the report. Okay, and this was going on for many years. The nurses were falsifying these reports, and the FBI got involved. They put cameras throughout the prison. So it went from 300 assaults a year to zero. And then they slipped up, and they assaulted this guy, and it was caught on camera, and three guards got arrested. Were you ever subject to mistreatment from guards when you were incarcerated? I had one incident. Mainly, I was extremely smart. I see what was going on around me, so I got to I gotta be smart here. I can't die here. I, I, don't, I don't have time to go to solitary. I have to fight my case. And when guys went to solitary, they lost their, their property. They lost everything. They came out of solitary to no property, no sneakers, no, no shoes, no nothing, okay, because the guards would take their property and throw it out when they're supposed to tag it and put it in a room. And... Just like if your family sent you a full package because you can get two a year, they would let the package sit there and everything would go spoiled. They thought it was funny. You know what I'm saying? And you had guards there that were decent, and they were upset that their coworkers were abusive and that were just really unfit to guard anybody. They were worse than some of the inmates, these guards. Let's talk about 2018. Yes. When you were exonerated. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people probably ask you or yeah. have asked you, did you hold the city accountable? Well, I sued the city the day that I got out. I had a team of lawyers that filed a lawsuit against the city of Buffalo. However, I have not received one dime this today because they dragged these lawsuits out three to five years before they decide to either take it to trial or settle. Okay, so they haven't settled or taken it to trial, but I have not made that my focus. I knew that I was going to be successful upon my release anyway because I was armed with enough knowledge to sell artwork, to market artwork, to build a website. And so I knew that I would be okay. The lawsuit was the last thing on my mind. Let's talk about the mm -hmm. artwork. Mm -hmm. Former First Lady Michelle Obama, she gifted her husband, the former president mm -hmm. of the United States, one of your pieces. How did that come about, and how okay. did that make you feel? Okay. Well, Michelle, Mrs. Obama saw me on Real Sports with Brian Gumble, okay, and she reached out to my assistant at the time, and it checked out that it was her. And so that was a great moment for me as an artist, as a human being, because it was a huge accomplishment for to be acknowledged by the First Lady. So it really did a lot for my career as an artist because after that you had other famous people reaching out that have my pieces you know whether it's John McEnroe tennis great to Steph Curry to Golden State Warriors you know I got to meet Tiger Woods he has a piece of mine Jack Nicholas uh went to the Masters I actually told Tiger Woods he was going to win the Masters in 2019 and he won that year mm. I had him on a one-on-one -on -one. I said Tiger you're going to win this tournament and he looked at me, and he said, I'm going to try my best. I said, no, no, you're going to win. And he looked at his manager and says, I like this guy. <laughs> yeah, and he won three days later. You got a gold medal from the Vatican. Oh, talk, yeah. talk about okay. that. So I, I, I thought gold medals were only reserved for uh, the Olympics. <laughs> well, let me say this. I, uh, I was invited to speak at the National African American Museum in Washington, D.C., in the Oprah Winfrey Theater, and they surprised me with this gold medal. What year was this in? This was in 2020. For the Vatican to surprise me with the gold medal was, like, 
out of this world. It was the medal of medals. What do they usually give the gold medal for? What does the well, they gave it to me for determination and perseverance and overcoming an obstacle. Prison Picasso. It's mm -hmm. your three episode documentary. Oh yeah. About your life, yes. your experience. Yes. Being wrongfully convicted. Can mm -hmm. you share, okay. just share more details about? Yeah. Well, there's been a, a number of film companies that reached out to me to do my documentary. And after speaking with them, I concluded that I wanted to produce my own documentary. So I got with some filmmakers and I lined up all the people that I felt was uh, played an integral part in my life. From the prison warden to guys that were in Attica with me to school teachers that helped me with my skill because I've been interviewed by almost everybody on the planet and these are the people that nobody ever interviewed. Nobody's ever interviewed my Uncle Ronnie who sent me the art supplies or my first art teacher when I was six years old. And so I just, or the prison warden, you know, I just thought it was very important to have all of these people to be a part of this documentary. My mom, family members, and people that I grew up with you know, so this is going to be an epic documentary because I reached out to my trial attorney, who I told you earlier didn't call the witnesses or anything, and he admitted on camera that he was threatened. He received a phone call from the prosecutor's office. This was the public defender that yes. was assigned to your case? Yes, he received a phone call from the prosecutor's office, and they told him not to call witnesses. So this is epic mm. in the sense that I don't think nothing like this has ever been revealed ever in film. Okay, because things that go on in our justice system is a, a secret to us. You know, we hear about things, but we don't really know the, the dirt that goes on behind the, scenes. The, you know, behind the scenes. And so he was, you know, he felt bad about what happened. You know, and I guess a lot of people looking at him like, wow, why, how could you not represent this guy properly? And so he gave the goods. He said that he was threatened and told not to call the witnesses. Did they ever charge anyone for the murder? They brought him to court. The day that I was released, they brought him to court, and he took a plea bargain, but they didn't give him no time, okay? He pled guilty to this charge of murder that I went to jail for. They didn't give him any time. What was their reasoning? Was it because of the previous murder? Well, what happened was, was this. Remember my gun that I said I left? In his confession, he never said that that was my gun. So they wanted him to come to court and say it was my gun. And so they gave him a plea bargain and gave him no time for this charge to come to court and say it was my gun. So what they did was they exonerated me of murder and then they charged me with a gun charge even though they never found that weapon they charged me with a gun charge so this is how dirty our system is is that 20 something years 30 years later they changed their narrative to fit how they wanted this thing to go you know and so i'm an honest person i didn't have to say i left my gun and you know because there's no proof of it but you know so many people lying here like the guys that rolled up and started shooting, and one of them testified against me and said they didn't shoot at all. They said they didn't have no weapon. You know, everybody's lying here. So I'm all about just being straightforward. This is what it is. I don't have to hide nothing. And I didn't commit the crime, but I, I brought a gun and I put my gun up. And this guy ran down the street and grabbed my gun when I was in the store. I want to talk about Coons Avenue, Goodyear, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier that, you know, when you uh, were exonerated, you mm -hmm. had someone take you back over to the block. Oh, yeah. And you were disappointed mm -hmm. with what you saw, mm -hmm. and you mentioned rebuilding. Yes. So how, how does that look? When I go down Coons, Goodyear, Bissell, and I see all these lots and all of this stuff, 
I said, you know what? I got to build some homes on these streets. So that is the goal of the next two years. And then I also want to build a, a learning center in that neighborhood also, because these kids don't have anything to go to, any type of activities to help them self-esteem. You know, it's very important. And to teach them and to explain to them that they have options. I don't see any programs in that area whatsoever, nowhere for them to go. What's next for you? To continue to build the foundation, I'm always speaking, I'm always networking and building new relationships with people. Valentino, thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on What's Next. Thanks for having me and I'll come back anytime you have me. You're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.